flabbergasted that the North Koreans are second. That is the other big revelation that North Koreans were second, China third, Iran fifth, uh, fourth, and um, uh, all criminal groups we put together were, were in fifth place with almost 10 hours to break out on average. Initially, it was surprising to me too. I certainly expected China to be in second place, but I have to say, in thinking this through, um, it is not a surprise. And the North Koreans have been at it for 20 years. Um, when you think about how they recruit people into their cyber forces, there's a great deal of selection that happens. The best kids in high school get into college. The best people in the class get sent into the um, cyber forces. Uh, the other thing I, I think uh, is important to point out about North Korea is I actually think that they're the most innovative actor in cyberspace, bar none. They are the first ones, if you look at the history, uh, to have been using destructive attacks mm -hmm. uh, to accomplish coercion and, and um, achieve their objectives. They were the first ones to use information operations. We focused so much on Russia, but two years before Russia, we had Sony. And I think the U.S. government and, and most of us in the industry fundamentally misunderstood Sony because we so much focused on the destructive element of Sony Pictures attack that we forgot that they stole emails and leaked them to WikiLeaks two right. years before Russia. Yeah. And, and, and now you have uh, North Koreans engaging in massive cyber crime in terms of breaking into banks and stealing hundreds of millions of dollars on an unprecedented scale. So in terms of actually achieving objectives in cyber, I think they're the best out there. Episode 252 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and uh, any uh, resemblance between uh, the views expressed here and uh, the views of our clients or our friends or our firm uh, is purely coincidental. I, I'm going to be interviewing today. Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and CTO of CrowdStrike, who's been on here several times before, uh, um, and uh, whose company just released its 2019 Global Threat Report with some really interesting stuff in it. Welcome, Dmitry. Thank you. And uh, uh, for the news roundup, uh, we'll let Dmitry talk too, but uh, Maury Schenk from our European uh, Technology and Cybersecurity Beat in London. Uh, uh, welcome, Maury. Good to be here, Stuart. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll give you Weaver. Uh, Nick Weaver, <laughs> senior researcher at uh, the International Computer Science Institute and a lecturer at UC Berkeley. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of today's program, holding the record for returning to Steptoe and Johnson more times to practice law than any other lawyer. Jumping right in, the story that I wanted to cover, because it's kind of a law story, is uh, that uh, uh, police are using reverse location search warrants to compel Google to tell them who was in the neighborhood of a particular crime when the crime occurred. Uh, and uh, uh, not surprisingly, Slate and a host of uh, NGOs like EFF and the ACLU are trying to say that's just shocking. Uh, and I, I have to say, I, I just don't get it. I, uh, I don't see what's wrong with finding this. There's a notion that uh, we ought to uh, be able to identify the person before we can do a search warrant. But the fact is uh, uh, we've radically – uh, limited the numbers of people who are going to get uh, um, uh, searched or are going to fall under suspicion when we say we want to find people who are in this location at this time. Uh, Nick, uh, uh, tell me I'm wrong. Nope, because the problem is this data is collected at all. So Google 
has a data collection attitude that would make uh, NSA lawyers embarrassed. So among other things, their apps collect location tied to identity. And if it's there and searchable, it's with probable cause, it makes sense to search. And so I think these are concerning searches, but the target of the ire is wrong. The target of the ire should be those who are collecting these dossiers on everybody on the planet in the first place, not that, hey, law enforcement realizes you can take advantage of these dossiers that said companies are producing on everybody on the planet. Dimitri, can I just ask, how is this different from getting data from telcos that have um, cell tower records of who was in the area. It's really even easier. It was even easier to get cell tower dumps than any of the stuff that people are now complaining about here. Right? Uh, and, and the cell tower dumps were delivered on the theory that uh, uh, this is information that belonged to the phone company and you could subpoena it. Uh, so uh, asking for a search warrant here at all is a substantial improvement in the amount of protection that data privacy gets. Uh, um, and Google actually has a second rule, apparently, in which they say, we're only going to give you anonymized hashed data so that you can, you can identify that a person was here, and then you can go look for the next crime and see if there's any overlap between the person who was at the first crime and the second, and then they'll tell you who it was, but otherwise they might not. So uh, it, it is kind of a, a surprise that uh, this is attracting a lot of unfavorable attention. The other thing is with uh, tower dumps is these days tower dumps mostly are done with warrants because of uh, fallout from Carpenter. Right. But tower dumps do not have the precision that Google has. Tower dumps, unless you're doing like E911 tracking, give you people within a couple kilometer radius. This can get you within a 50 meter radius. And maybe sooner, soon better than that. Uh, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, uh, but the goalpost, this is goalpost moving. Uh, everybody was celebrating that in Carpenter they were requiring a, a, uh, a warrant. Now people are saying, oh, warrant, that's not good enough. So uh, we, we'll have this fight uh, as uh, the ACLU tries to get us shocked about things that uh, never shocked us when Google did it and never shocked us before when the police did it, but now suddenly has to be shocking. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of shocking, um, the UK House of Commons uh, uh, Select Committee, I guess it is, uh, certainly has every party known to man, um, has issued a report on disinformation and fake news. Uh, I, and uh, you know, I, I I have said the 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 quick summary on this is uh, because Leave won, everybody in Britain must hate uh, Facebook, and because Trump won, everybody in the United States must hate Trump, uh, must hate uh, Facebook, uh, and so this is a a long extended uh, attack on social media, much of it aimed at Facebook. Uh, uh, Maury, how seriously is this being taken in the UK? Well, I think it's being taken pretty seriously, and as you might uh, predict, Stuart, I don't fully disagree. Uh, don't fully agree with the high-level summary. You know, <laughs> those of us who are more lefty think that you know, disinformation is having a big effect for the forces who think uh, foreigners and are dangerous, rather than uh, let's all do it together. But 
uh, it is a pretty, the, the report is rather sensationalistic. It reads kind of like an investigatory report. It spends a lot of time on Facebook privacy scandals. It spends a lot of time on a election man manipulation in the UK, US, elsewhere, uh, places like St. Kitts and Nevis, and it identifies a number of bad actors like Cambridge Analytica and some affiliated companies. And it's a very highly regulatory set of recommendations about more power for regulators, a digital levy to pay for them, et cetera, et cetera. So I agree with you that it's rather extreme, if not with the overall summary of where it's going. Well, and it's it, 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 it I, you you obviously are farther left than I am, which is not hard. Uh, but uh, uh, a large chunk of this is just saying. Facebook was present when results that the left doesn't like uh, prevailed in elections, uh, and therefore Facebook must pay because we never want to have that happen again. I, you know, I think it's an attack on the Facebook business model. So they're not saying these things are illegal necessarily. Uh, some of them are breaches of Facebook's terms of service, but there's a lot of people out there who are criticizing Facebook's business model and its effect on our society, and I think that's the point of view that the report takes. Well, and it's fair enough to, to, to criticize some aspects of uh, uh, the business model, uh, uh, and that's a, a social media problem generally. Uh, uh, but I think the real juice in the report is we're shocked to discover that uh, sometimes the right wins elections, uh, and uh, we have to adopt measures to make sure that doesn't ever happen again. All right. Uh, speaking of never happening again, uh, um, the last two months, there have been unfolding scandals under the heading DNSpionage, uh, uh, in which there have been significant compromises of DNS security in ways that have advanced a lot of Middle Eastern uh, intelligence collection. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, how serious was this and what should we be thinking about it? This is a very serious set of attacks. So as far as we know, and there's the great CrowdStrike analysis, and then Brian Krebs took advantage of some of the indicators to make a public report on other infected, affected targets. Let's start with the fundamental problem of secure communication is who do you trust? And so when you set up your domain, you have to trust your registrar. That is the persons that are talking to the DNS infrastructure to set things up. And that's really the root of trust for everything. And so if your uh, DNS registrar is compromised or your account with the registrar is compromised, somebody can trivially redirect all communication intended to you through them, decrypt it, re-encrypt it, because they can get cryptographic authorizations with uh, the certificate authorities. And now they're able to basically intercept every communication, web, email, etc., destined for your target. So a lot of the um, uh, victims of this were governments in the Middle East, Jordan, Kuwait, Albania, UAE, Lebanon, Iraq. Um, uh, you know, as you go through the list, you start to imagine you you have a pretty good Iran idea. was missing. Yeah, Iran was missing exactly, uh, um, and so was Israel. Uh, um, so uh, you kind of wonder, uh, but you don't wonder much who the uh, uh, attackers were. But if you were the Jordanian government and you had a uh, a, a domain, wouldn't you 
be kind of surprised to discover that all of the communications from other parts of the government are coming into you through Germany instead of through uh, the uh, mechanisms that it used to use? So, so the, the, what they did was actually very smart. They changed the records to point it at their servers for very brief periods of time. So it wasn't continuous. They were sampling the data. Uh, okay. So it was actually very, very difficult to detect. Uh, and even systems that had DNS monitoring um, uh, weren't able to pick it up even when they were using multiple providers. But the real problem is that, and we've known this for many decades now, is that uh, the Internet is basically built on quicksand. A lot of these protocols that we rely on, like DNS, like BGP for routing, are really fundamentally insecure whenever built with security in mind. And everything we've built on top of it to built on security really relies on those things working well. So as Nick mentioned, if um, you're using encryption, if you're using certificates, but you're able to compromise the certificate authority and then use DNS to redirect the traffic, you can read all the encrypted traffic. And that's exactly what um, these adversaries were able to do. So we, we do have a fundamental problem here. We've known about it for many years. None of this, uh, what we saw here, was surprising in terms of how it was um, done. Um, uh, we've known that this was possible for long periods of time. It was surprising, I guess, to some that it was actually done. How how valuable uh, would full implementation of DNSSEC actually be in uh, uh, in combating this kind of attack? So, so it actually did uh, stop some of the attackers, uh, but only because they didn't uh, try to mess with DNSSEC. Uh, the final problem is that if you access the registrar, you can change the uh, public key that's available and published oh, in the so DNSSEC yeah, zone. You're toast. So you're absolutely toast. And uh, you know this is a problem when you trust a third party like the certificate authority, like the registrar withholding valuable data and being the authoritative entity for that data. If they get hacked, we're all screwed. And uh, what, what are the prospects that uh, uh, the... DNS providers, uh, the or the certificate authorities uh, here are going to suffer some of the same pain that uh, DigiNotar uh, suffered when it, it, its CA uh, key was was stolen. We'll have to see. I, I don't think there will be lasting effect because the reality is most of them are very vulnerable. So it's not like there's a gold standard so it, out it there. It could have happened to anybody. Yeah. Uh, all right, Nick. Uh, any last minute thoughts? Uh, I thought that was well put, and welcome to the internet. Yeah, there, there's always somebody uh, who doesn't care quite as much about your security as you do. Who you have to rely on because they're in the root of trust. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the Swiss have come up with a mechanism for voting online, and uh, it's proving pretty controversial. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, I, I, I can guess what your ultimate recommendation here is, but what was wrong with the Swiss system? Well, there's the high level of they were just trying to do internet voting, which is such a bad idea that XKCD has a classic cartoon on the subject. And then there was the implementation, which is apparently Let's put it this way, the Charlie Foxtrot you expect from online voting systems, <laughs> where bad theory meets bad practice meets bad code meets plenty of O of uh, one fraud scenarios where you can make Mickey Mouse win by 10 million votes. Yeah, I was uh, the, the XKCD thing was um, 
right on point. It, it said, you know, if you ask elevator uh, engineers how safe elevators are, they'll tell you about all the multiple uh, fail-safe devices that uh, uh, make it almost impossible for the elevator to fail. If you do the same thing with people who uh, uh, make civilian aircraft, they'll they'll give you a similar speech, maybe not quite as uh, uh, self-confident. And then if you ask security engineers about internet voting, they immediately hold up across a bag of garlic and run for the door. But, but I think that yep. highlights the difference between safety and security, that with safety, we're worried about act of God type of situations and not an active adversary that's trying to circumvent it, which is a problem we face in uh, voting. Yes, I, I, and it, it is certainly the case that if you uh, if you wanted to cause an elevator to fall... Uh, there are trivial if, ways if, of doing you that. Could, you could do that. To, I, in fact, I, 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 was, I was unsuccessful at this, but I made an effort about 10 years ago when we first got uh, talking elevators to figure out if I could hack into the system that announced the floor so that I could make personal comments about partners who were on that floor. Luckily, I failed completely in that effort, uh, uh, which is why I'm still at Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, all right. Um, One thing I'd like to add on the elevator analogy, though, uh-huh. is that sabotaging an elevator safety systems probably requires physical access as well. So sabotaging a thousand elevators requires breaking into a thousand elevators ah, compared with sabotage of a pure electronic system where changing a thousand votes is the same effort as changing one. Well, uh, my my favorite uh, aspect of the implementation uh, was that the uh, uh, the system was really complicated to put together. It would be easy to screw up, not not deliberately, but just uh, um, because it was such a complex uh, um, integration. Uh, and the commenting on the code says, oh, be really careful here. Uh, and I thought, God, you know, if we if we just solve our security problems with more comments like that, uh, uh, life would be easy. All right. Facebook, Title Three. This is the – this is a – uh, kind of beneath the bedclothes uh, fight that has been going on for a long time. Uh, it was a fight over uh, Title III uh, um, uh, order in a, uh, against Facebook uh, uh, that has never seen the light of day. The uh, court rejected the uh, Title III order, uh, refused to enforce the order that the Justice Department wanted to pursue. So Facebook won. Uh, and then uh, uh, a, a bunch of NGOs uh, asked the court, and the, maybe the Washington Post as well, asked the court to uh, disclose what the fight had been about uh, at least in part, Facebook supported the in part uh, and uh, uh, the uh, or in whole uh, as civil society groups uh, wanted. Uh, and so we now have uh, this bizarre uh, story in which we don't know what the court is talking about, but the court is very clear that it's not going to disclose anything about the uh, the decision beyond the fact that there was one. Uh, and Nick, um, what's your sense about what it was that uh, the parties were fighting about? The problem is, is it's one of two situations. It's either this was, so background on Facebook Messenger. Facebook Messenger has two modes. It either has a mode where Facebook sees everything because it's going through the web interface, 
or the phone-to-phone only mode, which is solidly end-to-end encrypted. And we don't know what the government was asking for. And one of the weird things about the decision is I think the judge is slightly misinformed. So in the end, it came down to we can't separate out the criminal investigation stuff from affecting sources and methods. The problem is, is the source and method is either it's trivial and Facebook managed to fight the warrant on some other grounds, or it's impossible without forcing Facebook to change the code for the messenger, which would have huge public implications. That, that would be the so, refight of the FBI versus Apple uh, uh, yes. um, debate. I wondered if it was possible that uh, instead they were trying to get uh, uh, Facebook to add somebody to the group that was being used and obfuscate the fact that they'd added the FBI to the uh, clandestine uh, MS-13 murder squad uh, uh, communications. That wouldn't work because the Messenger encryption library underneath Facebook Messenger already considers that as a threat model. You could use that against Apple, but you can't use that against Facebook Messenger because there's a almost but not... quite hidden feature where I can go, let's see everybody else's keys and make sure that nobody else was added in. Okay. So, but but people can see this, but if they're, you know, uh, sloppy gangbangers, maybe they wouldn't notice. Yeah. But all it takes is one person noticing it and it falls apart. Do you think the government would tolerate a title three order where you say, oh, and there's a chance that the Title III wiretap will not only be discoverable by the target, but the target will be able to announce that, hey, you're doing these Title III wiretaps. So those are the choices. We don't know what uh, what this fight was about. Uh, but since Facebook won and uh, the government lost, my guess is it was one of the more dramatic uh, um, requests rather than one of the more benign requests. Maury, the New York Times says that India is emulating China in its uh, internet regulation. You buy that? Well, not 100%, but uh, to a significant extent. We're seeing more and more countries adopting really strict, uh, well, broad and discretionary restrictions on what can be controlled online. Um, Even in Europe, people are talking about harms-based control of internet content And China, Russia, Turkey have very strict controls. And India has uh, proposed some regulations which look quite likely to be adopted that are heading much more that direction. Yeah, but I think you could just as as easily have said uh, uh, India is emulating Germany or the EU. Uh, I I think uh, they're going further than that. Really? Well, uh, maybe on encryption, right? They, they they clearly have said we want to be able to decrypt some of these communications. But other than that, it's kind of uh, we want to make sure the disinformation and uh, illegal and harmful and uh, uh, unduly sexy speech doesn't get uh, promulgated. Yeah, uh, although the un- the definition of unlawful content I, appears to be much broader in these India regulations than in Europe. Also, India is weakening intermediary protections. In Europe, we still have the e-commerce directive where 
you know, if you're just a conduit or a host, you have a lot of immunities. And India is proposing to significantly weaken existing similar immunities. There. Although I will note that that uh, um, UK report uh, says that uh, we absolutely need controls on illegal and harmful speech. And the harmful, of course, is uh, you know inconsistent with the values of the great and the good in uh, uh, Southeast, London, uh, Southeast England. But I, the notion that stuff has to be suppressed that isn't illegal is pretty common across Europe, isn't it? And, and really, I, frankly, get increasingly common in the U.S. Oh, yeah. There is a wide discussion about Internet harms, but uh, it's directed at stuff like, you know, child pornography um, and terrorist content and as you've destabilizing political content as well. I, I still don't think it's as broad as what they're discussing in India, where it's really a, a vehicle for broad social control like you have in China. OK, um, I. I, I want to make this public announcement. The Cyber Law Podcast has been working on artificial intelligence, and we have the coolest artificial intelligence tools in the world. They're so good, we're not going to tell you about them. Uh, <laughs> that is what OpenAI more or less said. They said, we're working on this mechanism for taking a sentence or two and turning it into an entire riff. Um, and the AI takes the sentence or two and does the riffing. Uh, and it's so good, it scares the hell out of us. And so we're not going to release the code uh, or the um, the training modules that uh, that produced it. Um, uh, uh, Nick, I, I actually looked at the, the riffs, and they aren't that good. Yeah, they're, it's better. The Markov bot style stuff just keeps getting better and better. And it also depends on who you want to riff against. So if you want to do fake uh, Fox News, that's going to be easier than fake NPR because you're going to have to do more content that's semantically right. But even so, it's <laughs> okay. So you're saying you're saying the uh, the sh sentences are shorter and the mon uh, the the, the multisyllabic words are less common in on Fox. It's not just that; it's that uh, you could easily imitate Tucker Carlson with just "Oh my God, the brown hordes are coming" and riffs thereof. It takes a little more nuance to to do NPR. Except for the give us more money part. That's quite <laughs> that, predictable on that. Okay. Although to throw a little bit of cold water on the whole AI hype, yeah. uh, there was a great tweet that I saw last week that said, what is the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? If it's written in Python, it's machine learning. If it's written in PowerPoint, it's artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense. All right. So, uh, uh, we'll see. Eventually, I'm sure OpenAI will release uh, uh, what it's uh, done. But uh, uh, I think we've got a ways to go before we have to be really scared of uh, AI uh, uh, riffing on uh, uh, bits of, uh, of text. Um, all right. Let, why don't we turn if we can, uh, unless uh, uh, we had a few stories that we were thinking about covering. Uh, Maury, Nick, any of those stories that you really want to uh, be heard on? Uh, yes, on the uh, YouTube one. Yeah. So, so YouTube is, is 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 taking a lot of grief because the comments on a bunch of kids' uh, athletic uh, uh, and gymnastic programs are written by what sure look like uh, pedophiles uh, saying, "Oh, go to a minute four, uh, second twenty, you know," and she does the splits. It's so great um, and, and nasty stuff like that. And uh, uh, advertisers are saying, uh, uh, "We don't want our." Um, ads appearing next to comments like that. 
Um, and the situation's actually worse. It's that once you get onto one of these videos, YouTube's recommendation engine continues to down this rabbit hole. And this is a symptom of YouTube's larger problem. You optimize for engagement, you're going to engage specific communities, whether it's anti-vax crazies who don't care that their unvaccinated kids may kill others, to QAnon, to jihadi, to this. And I'm not sure if there's a way to solve the radicalization problem inherent in recommendation models. Yeah, so the drive to extremes that uh, recommendation engines send you down is very, very real because there's something and it could be it, it drives you towards extremes of uh, weightlifting. It drives you towards extremes of uh, home knitting uh, or it drives you toward extremes of um, uh, sexual perversion. I and, and part of this is just it's human nature, right? Uh, they're telling you what other people who looked at this video went on to look at. And um, uh, those people went on to look at uh, increasing uh, it, uh, other extreme things precisely because that was their nature. Um, and I, 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 I see the phenomenon. It bothers me. And yet I think it's more humanity than the, um, the recommendation engine that's at fault here. Actually, I think it's both. So what happens is you get multiple feedback loops here where you have the recommendation engine radicalizing humanity and humanity radicalizing the recommendation engine. Fair enough. That's, I, as soon as people realize there are other people like them, they get more confident in the values that they share, uh, even if they aren't very attractive values. Uh, um, a, and, and so there is a reinforcing effect. So I, I, I see the problem. I'm not sure the answer is to say stop doing recommendations because uh, there's an awful lot of, uh, uh, of value in those recommendations and an awful lot of subcultures that we're perfectly happy to have uh, continue to prosper. Uh, uh, so figuring out when you should stop or moderate your recommendation engines um, strikes me, I, maybe because I am a minority in this regard, uh, at least in Silicon Valley, they would cheerfully take three quarters of my views and say, we'll never recommend anyone look at those. Um, a, and And so the idea that they should be saying people with views like yours should not be able to find each other online is troubling. So, Stuart, I'll just jump in on the Laurie Love story in the UK to say a powerful message for wannabe hackers out there that if you hack into U.S. government websites, even if you don't get extradited to the United States, you probably won't get your encrypted devices back. Yeah, so he he, he I, I, talk about chutzpah. Uh, he had all this this stuff he'd stolen from the United States government, and he said, uh, "What's on my on my computer? Can I have my computer back now that you've decided not to send me to the United States because I got Asperger?" Uh, as if that were an excuse. Uh, and uh, at least they said no. Although I I actually think they should have given it back to him with a keylogger built in. And then they could have figured out everything that he took, and then maybe they have more evidence to, to prosecute him on. Or no, only allow guy. unencrypted data. Yeah, that, that, that could be too. Okay, um, 
Dimitri uh, Alperovich. Dimitri's been on the program many times before. He's always got great uh, thoughtful views about uh, cybersecurity. And the 2019 Global Threat Report from CrowdStrike had some really interesting stuff in it. Uh, 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 Dimitri, uh, can you give me the elevator summary of the report? What are the things that really struck you from this report? Yeah, so the report covered uh, what we saw last year in terms of major actors, major events that were taking place. But probably the most novel thing that we did this year is put together an adversary ranking, at least of the major countries um, that are involved in cyber activity that we had seen. And this is something that I've been asked uh, uh, to provide many times, and I'm sure you have, who is the best out there. And we spent a lot of time thinking about What's the right way to do ranking? And uh, pretty quickly, we rejected the idea of looking at tools for a couple of reasons. One, you can buy tools. So mm -hmm. just because you're a country with billions of dollars to spend doesn't mean I'm going to put you in number one. Uh, but also, probably just as importantly, the adversaries often don't use the best tools when they break in. So um, they use what needs to um, uh, that what they need to achieve their objectives. So that didn't seem like the right way to rank it. So we started thinking of how do you actually rank people? How do you determine who's got the best folks and who's best at it operationally? And we came up with this metric uh, that we call breakout time, which is really how rapidly can they break out of a beachhead that they established. The idea is that anyone can spearfish lots of people in an organization and get people to click. In our tests, when we do uh, sort of phishing tests, we, we, we see that on average, about 30% of the people in any organization will click yeah. on just about You're anything. doing great if you get down to 20. Exactly. So getting in is not the problem, but getting to your actual objective once you get someone to click on a link takes a lot of effort because you have to figure out how to get there, um, you have what privileges you need, what credentials you need, where to go. Just imagine yourself in the shoes of someone who's starting a new job. You've got the IT department telling you where the resources are, how to get your machine set up and everything else. As an adversary, you have none of that benefit you still have to figure it out. And we thought that whoever is fastest at doing that, whoever has the shortest breakout time, really is uh, fantastic operationally. So let me, let me ask you just a little question because I didn't understand from reading the report how you measured it. Did you kind of find compromises and then walk backwards to see how they got in and how long it took them to get to the uh, full uh, compromise? So last year, we uh, detected 30,000 major intrusions um, across uh, uh, lots of industries and governments and countries. And in, th in those 30,000 intrusions where we actually had adversary moving laterally, where they didn't get shut off by the, uh, by the company quickly enough, we uh, looked at those and said, okay, when was the first time that they actually had code execution inside the target network? Okay. And um, how long did it take them to actually get off that system and move laterally? So that was the measurement for breakout time. There are a couple of uh, you know caveats that I have to mention because you know not every adversary may have necessarily motivation to move fast. Although as defenses are getting better and better, I do think that that is going to become a, a bigger priority for organizations mm -hmm. because if you get detected quickly and ejected, you don't accomplish your mission. So um, what we're seeing is that adversaries are trying their best uh, to move as quickly as possible. But um, you know the uh, the ranking came out to be really really interesting. Um, All right. So I'm now I'm gonna we're gonna do a little drum roll. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's open the envelope. Uh, to who uh, gets the strikey for the year for the best uh, uh, time to break out? So perhaps unsurprisingly, it was Russia. Um, and I have to note that we didn't measure Western intelligence agencies simply because we didn't have data on the operations. Um, uh, we almost never see them targeting our customers for obvious reasons because we don't have a lot of customers in Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia. And uh, you know, I would expect that they would be at the top of the list, uh, far eclipsing even Russia. 
But what was most interesting about Russia is how fast they were. They were eight times as fast as their nearest competitor, um, the country that was in second place, and their breakout time was 18 minutes. So if you think about it from a defender's perspective, that's how long you have to basically contain the incident, 18 minutes, before you have a major breach on your hands. And um, that, uh, again, emphasizes that speed is everything in cybersecurity. It is a race against the adversary. And when you're facing the Russians in particular, you have to be really, really fast. I wonder if it says something about how they're organized, too, that uh, maybe the Russians are more um, kind of uh, the fighter pilots of cyberspace. They, they are determined to go in and do everything that needs to be done as opposed to uh, bit players who say, I, I, my job is to take this beach and then the next guy will take the cliffs and the next guy will take the, uh, uh, the hedgerows after that. Um, is it possible that the Russians just have, a, have some really good all-around players who once they get in can, can quickly pivot to uh, compromising the rest of the system, whereas other folks have to do it in a more uh, pedestrian way? It is possible that in other countries you have teams that you have to do handoffs and there's delays because of that. Uh, but uh, you know, one thing to note here is that there was actually a great deal of variance between individual teams within um, each country. So even in the case of Russia, there were slower teams, there were faster teams. And that's something that we struggle with. Are, are you getting emails from people who say, my my, my bonus depends on you <laughs> naming me? <laughs> exactly. Your your uh, next year's Crash Strike report is your goal uh, for, uh, for whether you get a bonus or not. But uh, I think uh, it is important to understand that every country is going to have an A team and a B team. Generally speaking, um, we actually see that civilian intelligence agencies are much better than militaries. So in the case of Russia, for example, SVR is better operationally typically than GRU. Same is true in China. MSS is better than PLA and so forth. In general, I think it's because in militaries, and this is true in the U.S. as well, people move around too much. In the in civilian agency, you get in, into the job and you may be in the job for 20 years and you have opportunities to learn from others and really build up your expertise. Where in the military, you know, you're tank commander one day, you're cyber operative the next, and maybe you're an artillery guy the year after that. And, and it's just hard to become uh, really, really professional at that. I know, you know, the U.S. military is struggling with this right now. So here's what I'm... Uh, I'm not at all surprised that the Russians would be first. I am flabbergasted that the North Koreans are second. That is the other big revelation that North Koreans were second, China third, Iran fifth, uh, fourth, and um, uh, all criminal groups you put together were, were in fifth place with almost 10 hours to break out on average. Um, initially, it was surprising to me, too. I certainly expected China to be in second place. But I have to say, in thinking this through, um, it is not a surprise. And the North Koreans have been at it for 20 years um, when you think about how they recruit people into their cyber forces, there's a great deal of selection that happens. The best kids in high school get into college. The best people in the class get sent into the um, cyber forces. In China, you just have way too many people. So you can blend in and be average. They certainly have some good people. But uh, with so many people, uh, it's, it's hard for everyone to be the best. And in general, even if you look at Five Eyes, I would say pound for pound, some of the smaller agencies are better than the U.S. because they just can't afford to have anyone who is average. When you only right. have five people in New Zealand, every, each one of those better be a rock star if you want to accomplish your mission. So um, in general, I think the smaller organizations are more nimble and have uh, better people um, um, as, as a result. Uh, but uh, the other thing I, I think uh, is important to point out about North Korea is I actually think that they're the most innovative actor in cyberspace, bar none. They are the first ones, if you look at the history, uh, to have been uh, using destructive attacks mm -hmm. uh, to accomplish coercion and, and um, achieve their objectives. 
they were the first ones to use information operations. We focused so much on Russia, but two years before Russia, we had Sony. And I think the U.S. government and, and most of us in the industry fundamentally misunderstood Sony because we so much focused on the destructive element of Sony Pictures attack that we forgot that they stole emails and leaked them to WikiLeaks. Two right. years before Russia, yeah, and uh, oh no, the Russians clearly were were just drafting behind the uh, the North Koreans. Yeah, exactly, and and, and now you, you have uh, North Koreans engaging in massive cybercrime in terms of breaking into banks and stealing hundreds of millions of dollars on an unprecedented scale. So, in terms of actually achieving objectives in cyber, I think they're the best out there. Wow, I, I you think that others are going to? You think the Russians will be next to steal start stealing money? Well, uh, we certainly have criminal groups that are doing that in Russia. So far, on the nation state level. Uh, we, we haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, although um, there is a blending of the two where, you know, in the case of Yahoo, of course, we had criminal groups that the FSB co-opted that were also on the side uh, uh, putting putting money in their pockets as they were executing national security priority missions. So I'm under the impression that the last time I looked at the Verizon report, it was still the case that the time from compromise to discovery of compromise was measured in months. So, so the, the, does it matter really whether you're dealing with somebody who can compromise you in 18 minutes or in nine hours? So we track that statistic as well. It's called dwell time in the industry. And uh, depending on, on the, the company you use, uh, I think on average, everyone's around the same, which is about 90 days uh, from um, uh, from detection of an incident to actually um, how long how, to, to determine how long they've been in there. But that statistic is fundamentally misleading because us and, and the other firms out there do it based on incident response. And the incident response are really the cases where things have failed, right? right? The victim has been compromised. And for every IR that we do, there are literally thousands of cases where the company is actually able to mobilize and quickly stop the breach. Mm -hmm. So the da that data, I think, is highly biased. It's still useful to track, but it doesn't tell the full story. Okay. So it, it, what you're really saying is that people need an IR, internal IR capability that can respond in hours. You, you need to respond quickly. And, and something that I've been promoting is a set of metrics that I think every organization should adapt, um, which is a way to measure how fast you are. And it, I call it the 11060 rule. What is your average time to detection of an incident, average time to investigation, and average time to respond? And the best companies we work with try to detect in one minute on average, investigate in 10 minutes, and remediate and contain in one hour. Now, clearly, if you're facing the Russians that break out in 18 minutes, you, you can't even wait an hour. But, but on average, if you start tracking what your metrics are, time to detect, time to investigate, time to remediate, and driving that down, and reporting that at the board level, at the CEO level, quarter after quarter, that is a great way to hold people accountable. I would love nothing more than in the federal government for every agency to provide every quarter or at least on an annual basis what are their averages uh, for time to detect, time to investigate, time to remediate. And we can see who's doing better than others yeah. and who is going in the other direction despite all the budgets and, and people that they're getting. Of course, getting. You're at, at that point, you're advertising, oh, yeah, kick me. <laughs> but yes, I, I, uh, I, I, I take your point. Uh, let me ask this. Thinking about tools, are there tools that could say, look, there are certain things that people who are looking to break out routinely do. Is there a way to slow down some of those processes uh, in the face of suspicious but not clearly malicious activity? Sure. And that's another caveat with the report is that obviously it's a lot easier to break out when the network is Swiss cheese versus one that's much more hardened. Uh, but it averages out because the, the, the networks that were targeted by all these adversaries um, had a mix of really hard, hardened target networks and, 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 and not so much. And uh, really, I think what, what shows um, in terms of the Russian uh, ability to be fast is how agile they are, how quick they're on their feet. Because as you know, 
In any military plan, the plan goes out the window at first contact with the enemy. Well, the same is true in cyber. You land on a system. You don't know where you're going to land. Is it fully patched? Um, uh, does it have local admin credentials on the box? Is, is the user logged in? So you have to quickly adapt and, and try various things that uh, – It's like, it's like that know. TV show, Naked and Afraid, right? You, they drop you in with no clothes and you're supposed to live off the land. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. And, and what makes the Russians so good is that they're able to adapt uh, to the environment and use different tools, right? It's not that they have some magic silver bullet that just allows them to break out every time. In fact, um, virtually every adversary most of the time uses Mimikatz. I call it the AK-47 of cyber. Mm -hmm. Every single uh, adversary group we've seen has used it at one point or another, but they don't rely on it exclusively, and they know that in cases where it's not working, they need to try something else. And that ability to quickly p uh, pivot and do something different is what makes... Um, you know uh, what separates the, the the great from the from the just uh, average. So the other thing that, that I noticed in this the report, you talked a little bit about the difference between malware compromises and malware free compromises, uh, and you there, there were striking differences between industries between whether people were mainly compromised with malware or malware free uh, uh, attacks. Can you explain? what the difference is and why that might be the case for some of these industries? So in general, we have seen a major trend on the part of many adversaries to try not to use malware because malware is noisy. Anytime you have an unknown program running in your environment, it can trigger suspicion. So the best thing to do is so this live is off the land. This is the success of signature-based and SIEM uh, uh, tools. As soon as something funny starts happening, a team that's well-prepared starts to yeah. see it. Less signature base and more endpoint detection and response okay. type of tools, EDR tools out there that record everything that's going on so you can start to look at anything that's anomalous. So adversaries have for a while now been adopting tools like PowerShell and common Windows programs that they can use to achieve those objectives without bringing anything into the environment that, that would be foreign to that environment and could tri trigger suspicions. It is interesting that in, in some industries we're seeing a lot more of the malware-free um, attacks and in others. I think it's more dependent on which adversaries are more likely to target them and which ones prefer that type of uh, toolkit. In, in a lot of criminal cases, we still see a lot of malware being used, a lot of Trojans, a lot because of ransomware. Because they're, they're spray and pray, typically. Right? Exa they're, exactly. They're, they don't need to hit every single one. In target intrusions where you really care about not being detected quickly, um, you may uh, use more living off the land tradecraft. So if that's the case, let me just look at this uh, list. It, 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 it looked to me as though actually the, the people who were least likely to get malware-free attacks were pharmaceuticals and oil and gas and financial. Those are our folks where I would have expected they had pretty sophisticated uh, um, defenses, and yet uh, uh, they seem to be attacked mainly with uh, malware uh, uh, attacks. So I, I have to tell you, Stuart, this is the biggest misconception that I've seen where the idea that some of these industries are so good at cybersecurity, um, it really, uh, as a general rule of thumb of what I've seen, the bigger the organization, the worse they are. Too mm -hmm. much bureaucracy, too much consensus. It's not about the budgets and the people. Uh, but, uh, you know, look at DOD, for example. They're horrible at cybersecurity, uh, despite the fact that they're spending more than any other organization on the planet and have more people. It's just too hard when you've got different fiefdoms and, and mm -hmm. lack of authorities and everything else. And we're seeing that in some of the largest organizations out there. Uh, but the biggest thing that I've seen that makes an effect is really the investment of the leadership, of the CEO, of the boards of directors. They don't really need to understand the technical details, but if they're giving you the support 
to say, we're not going to go into that country and do business there, or we're going to make these change to our business process that may impact our revenue because cybersecurity is more important. Those are the organizations that, as a rule of thumb, are doing really, really well. And those that take the approach of cybersecurity is for that guy in IT to figure out and secure us. Uh, those are the ones that you see on the front pages of newspapers reporting major breaches. Yeah. Okay. So um, new participants, at least they were new to me, uh, that you talk about in this, uh, not exactly surprises, but still interesting. India, Pakistan, South Korea, Vietnam. My guess is that uh, most of those were goaded into this by discovering that they'd been had by their principal geopolitical adversary. Um, uh, what's your take on the skills and uh, targeting of the those different uh, new entrants? South Korea is actually very good, um, as you would expect. Um, very technological society. Learned a lot from you know close cooperation with the U.S. military, obviously. Plus getting pwned and pwned uh, and pwned. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Vietnam is getting very, very good. Um, and uh, Vietnam is actually the biggest concern because they're getting very active in IP theft issues, uh, uh, trying to are, emulate yeah. uh, China. And they're sort of the next big economy that's trying to bring manufacturing and improve domestic capabilities. India and Pakistan are mostly going after each other. Right. Uh, so uh, we see less of them in uh, other areas of the world. But uh, certainly Vietnam and South Korea are the ones that I recommend for companies, Western companies, to keep an eye on. So the Indians and the Iranians often um, cooperate, uh, um, not as overtly as you might think, but uh, is there any sign that uh, there's been a TTP um, uh, sharing in that uh, in that uh, sphere? Well, what you have in the region in general is contractors that are basically mercenaries for, for hire, and um, uh, you have a number of companies in India that have worked uh, all over the Middle East uh, mm -hmm. doing operations for various Middle Eastern countries. So you see some of that, uh, perhaps not directly sponsored with the government, but at least with uh, a government closing their eyes to, to that activity. Um, so um, I don't think it, it's uh, intelligence to intelligence agency cooperation. At least we haven't seen that yet. Uh, but certainly cooperations amongst people and researchers. Okay. So yeah, the other thing that I was struck by as I went through the, uh, the report was how often you said, oh, and then they compromised credentials. Uh, maybe they got hashes and they took them offline and uh, whacked at them until they uh, could compromise them or they just – Got them in plain text uh, with man in the middle attacks or um, logging, logging attacks. Yeah. Uh, um, isn't it time everybody was using two factor authentication for everything corporate? Well, and we, we've seen attacks where two factor is being um, um, broken via social engineering attacks. So um, that's not a panacea either. It, it certainly raises the bar, but don't think that uh, just because you're using two factor, you're immune. And the Russians in particular are very, very good at prompting you for two-factor and then using man-in-the-middle attack to basically pass it on to the ultimate service. Um, so we are seeing greater adoption of two-factor, but um, it's, it's, um, it's not solving the problem. And most of the time, your Windows credentials are not being protected by two-factor. Very few organizations are doing that. And that's where we're seeing sort of the fuel, if you will, for breaking out is the theft of those credentials that allows you to move laterally across the network. So here's a this this is kind of an interesting side note, and I don't know how seriously to take it. One of the stories we didn't talk about today was that uh, the DPRK is attacking 
um, uh, Russian targets, uh, 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 and at the same time, the Russians are are pretending to be the DPRK when they do some of these intrusions. Uh, uh, what's going on there? Is there some subterranean conflict that we just aren't seeing, or is this just uh, the uh, the Russians having fun and uh, the DPRK wanting to pwn anybody who neighbors them? Well, when you've got friends like these who needs enemies, but uh, the reality is that this is just another indication that the alliance, like what we have with the Five Eyes and even within NATO, does not exist amongst our adversaries. They don't trust each other. The Chinese have been going after Russia for many years now, stealing their defensive technology, oil and gas um, um, espionage, and, and the North Koreans are doing the same. No one trusts each other in that region, and they're all keeping an eye uh, on each other. Uh, with regards to the Russians, we've seen them uh, try to pretend to be DPRK in the case of the Olympic destroyer, the attack on the Olympic And that was, that was a sad attempt at false flag, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. In general, these false flag attempts are very, very basic. Uh, it seems like someone just you know pulls a couple of strings from some malware that they had seen and adds it to the code, uh, thinking that perhaps— um, It'll uh, give them some, deniability, maybe? Well, s someone may fall for it, but in reality— you know, no, no one actually does. It's really, really hard to do a good false flag operation where you replicate everything that the other adversary is doing. And, and even in the case of the attack on the Olympic Games, uh, all you had to do was ask, why would North Korea attack the Olympic Games when they're in the midst of their charm offensive? They're sending people and teams over to South Korea and, and the uh, sister of uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, there was only one country that was banned from the Olympic Games, yes. and uh, you know it was uh, pretty clear who might be responsible. And I, look, ninety-five percent of the time, just asking Kui Bono, who, who who is interested in these things, these targets, tells you who did it. Uh, but there are limits to common sense, and uh, you know we learned those limits when we decided that uh, Saddam Hussein was acting like a guy who was hiding his uh, WMD program, when in fact he was hiding the fact that he didn't have one anymore. Uh, so it's a good clue. It's yeah. not enough, and you have to have more evidence for, for sure. Uh, but generally, it can point you into the right direction to pursue. Yeah. Um, just like you know, anytime you do a criminal investigation, the first thing you ask is who has motive. That's right. not everything, but uh, it's a good start. Right. Uh, you always ask who's the spouse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just two other things that I wanted to ask about. You talked about uh, uh, Russian and Chinese upstream attacks. Uh, I am. I wanted to hear a little bit more about how those work and how much of a threat they are. Absolutely. And the Justice Department did a great indictment of this recently with MSS operatives that were accused of uh, going after managed security service providers, um, managed service providers in general, not just security. And this is something that we've seen for a while now, for, for a number of years uh, from the Chinese and in some cases the Russians, where they're trying to get into the supply chain. They're trying to compromise either service vendor or the software vendor. Not Petya, what is a great example of that, right. where they target the MeDocs application that was used in Ukraine for filing taxes. So this is something that is a big trend and something that is increasingly worrying to companies because you can be fantastic at securing your perimeter. If you have a supply chain vendor or a contractor that's not secure, they can be the way in for the, for the organization. So um, we will see a lot more of those going forward. Yeah, I, uh, that that is 
for sure a, a big worry. What about the telecom? You talked a little bit about telecom company uh, uh, tax uh, also as upstream attacks. Yeah, telecom industries are um, some of the most targeted out there. As you can imagine, every nation state wants to get in and tap communications, get to the, um, so the lawful, N- NSA lawful intercept, <laughs> lawful intercept communications yeah. to see if you know that government is is watching perhaps their assets in country. So just a wealth of information, and you know with has a seven and all those capabilities, um, there, there's phenomenal attacks you can launch against others uh, through that uh, medium. And um, uh, that's why, I guess, in this country and across uh, our allies, there's so much discussion around Huawei and 5G, because if you turn over the keys to your adversary for those types of communications, what's the point of even trying to protect them? Okay. Uh, last th- thing that I pulled out of this was a discussion of cybercrime, which is the much bigger concern than uh, uh, national uh, nation state uh, intrusions for a lot of people uh, and the adoption of what was a nation state persistent attack uh, um, uh, tactic to build enough information so that you could really deliver a ransomware attack or maybe a CEO attack that was very credible and very effective and would guarantee you a lot of money. Uh, um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that kind of attack? Absolutely. We call it the big game hunting, where as opposed to doing the large uh, widespread attack and seeing who who clicks, you're going to pick a target. Uh, you're going to do some research into who is most likely to pay ransom. Maybe they've passed, paid ransom in the past, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons people should be hesitant to to offer a ransom. But um, then you, you actually do uh, old-fashioned intrusions, uh, break in, steal credentials, get domain admin on the network, and then deploy ransomware to lock up as much of the systems as possible. You know, we've seen that in the city of Atlanta. We've seen it in other places. And um, one group that we track out of Eastern Europe uh, called Riak has actually managed to steal over $4 million from 52 victims. This is actually ransom that was paid over the course of the last six months. So uh, great payoff and um, uh, great um, ability to, to do these target attacks. And, you know, the one thing that one type of group that we are particularly concerned about are the West Africans, the Nigerians and, 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 and folks from Ghana. They're doing these business email compromises where they can actually hack into the network, watch emails between CFO, between accounting people, CEO, emulate um um, an email from one to the other to um, issue fraudulent wire transfers, figure out exactly what the limits may be, who has authority to prove it. And uh, people have literally lost hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of those attacks. Yeah. It's scary. And what, actually, what's scary is that you know, $8 million is it's not a lot of money. I mean, for uh, for a business that a, gro- a business that grossed eight million dollars would be a small business in the United States. Uh, uh, in six uh, months, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, that's sixteen. Okay, yeah, I, uh, uh, but it's discouraging that there are so many attacks uh, and they they cost us so much when um, uh, the motivation to do them is not quite as big. It's you know th- th- these are not guys with you know, white cats in their lap. And, and these were 52 victims. There are probably hundreds of other victims that chose not to pay ransom, but yeah, probably uh, suffered hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. All right. So uh, what did I leave out that you want to talk about? Well, the, the one big thing also is um, uh, us really declaring, and I've said this in the past publicly as well, is that the deal, the Obama-Xi deal. Uh, ah, it's over, yes. Um, the Chinese espionage is back in force, and we're seeing literally on a daily basis targeting Western industries that have no dual-use capability whatsoever. There's no question that what they're stealing, medical research, uh, pharmaceutical, manufacturing data, 
is not national security priorities. There are those too, of course, but um, it's clear that they're back to their old ways of stealing uh, intellectual property for the purpose of economic espionage. So for the, from the Trump administration's point of view, uh, just to take the tariffs off, they ought to say the price is you got to stop this. Just go back to the status quo ante. Uh, you're obviously doing it because you're mad at us. Uh, we understand that, but you got to stop. Uh, would you know if they did stop? Yes, absolutely. So um, we saw them stop uh, shortly after the deal, and that continued for about a year. Uh, a lot of people at the time said, oh, maybe you're just not seeing them. Maybe their tradecraft is so good. That was nonsense. You know, maybe it was so good for a year and then they, right. they went back to their old ways. It makes no sense whatsoever. So uh, absolutely certain that we would pick it up again and we would be able to actually observe compliance. But, um, you know, it is interesting that uh, that deal was important, even though it didn't last, because it was the first time ever we've actually managed to get an adversary to change their behavior, even if for a short period of time. And I think there are probably lessons to be learned from that. Why did they do that? Because they were really afraid of our sanctions. Um, they were afraid that we were going to undermine their companies and prevent them from being uh, able to do business, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And uh, we need to find more leverage points against them and other adversaries to actually change their behavior. Yeah. So it's not it's not that, that we can't do it. Now that we've got decent attribution, we need to find better retribution to uh, uh, make clear what we will and won't, won't tolerate. Deterrence works. You just have to find the right lever, lever, levers to pull on. All right. Dimitri, thanks so much for doing this. This was great. Uh, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, uh, th thanks to Dimitri Alperovich uh, of CrowdStrike, to Maury Shank and Nick Weaver for joining me on the News Roundup. This has been episode 252 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, I want to congratulate Megan Reese. You're not going to hear her on the program uh, uh, because uh, uh, she has a new job on the Hill uh, uh, working for uh, uh, Senator Romney's uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Committee. Uh, uh, so, uh, if you're uh, if you're thinking about whether you should participate in the uh, Cyber Law Podcast, that's good for your career, among other things. Uh, also, uh, uh, you could get a bounce and uh, launch your own podcast series, like Nate Jones and Dave Chris, uh, uh, who have a Rule of Law podcast series. Uh, first issue, the first episode is up now on the Lawfare Podcast. Uh, if you want to suggest somebody else to uh, appear on the program. Uh, if you do uh, and they come on, we'll give you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, Dimitri, you probably have several, but we'll give you another one if you want. Uh, uh, send those uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, this week, I did get uh, the uh, topics out on Twitter at Stuart Baker and also up on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, please do rate our show. We're still we still stuck with one review on Stitcher that uh, didn't like my politics. Uh, um, so if you like, if you can tolerate my politics, uh, go there and say, yeah, it's all right, to even uh, despite them. Uh, also, Google Play, Spotify, we'd love to have uh, reviews there as well. Uh, coming up, uh, Gordon Kravitz and Steve Brill, the odd couple of content management uh, at NewsGuard. Uh, uh, Elsa Kanya, uh, one of our favorite China analysts from the Center for New American 
and Security, Amy Ziegart from the Stanford's Hoover Institution, Adam Segal from uh, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, all upcoming guests on the program. Um, uh, Lori Paul, soon to depart, uh, is our producer, along with Christy Jorge. Uh, uh, Lori's gotten a better job someplace else. Uh, Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver's our intern. Uh, we've given him new responsibilities and more money, so he won't be leaving hopefully soon. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Uh, we hope you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.